my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And yet we know, Lord, that we are here. We face the consequence and we see the result of that sin. But the ultimate sin we bear no more. The punishment for that laid on your dear Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And through that, we have life. Abundant life here in life forevermore. We thank you. We praise you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, we begin a new year series for the last three years. This is the third year in a row we've had a little stand up here. It gives you something about where we're going. This year, it's in view of Christ's return. We'll have three sections to that. The first one is live in in hope. So, as uh, you all know by now, I have a certain affinity, uh, love for words. I just, I just, they fascinate me. Um, I wish I could know them all. I cannot. Uh, but we use borrowed words all the time in English. English is one of those languages that really just collects a lot of. Um, words, uh, especially we use a lot of Latin Latin words. So one time when I goofed up at work, I felt like I was persona non grata. <laughs> In the military, I enjoyed business travel because they always paid per diem. In my work that involves counseling, most of it is pro bono. We all root for our alma maters, sports teams. In fact, e pluribus unum is on our money. Ad hoc, alibi, carpe diem. I could go on and some of you will appreciate this. As Yul Brenner said in The King and I, etc., etc., etc. If you don't know what that is, it's a thing. But what about... Sine qua non. You've probably heard that phrase before, and you know what it likely means, um, but you may not remember. Uh, sine qua non comes from three Latin words. Sine, which means without. Qua, which means which. And non, which is not. So, uh, one word that we have, uh, sine, uh, combined with chera, uh, wax becomes sine chera or in English sincere. Now, while that's not without debate or in Latin sine uh, controversia, <laughs> uh, most believe it means the wax fillings that were in either statues or, or pottery. So sine qua non, qua non means uh, without which isn't. That is, in order for something to be, there needs to be something else. Something uh, basic and fundamental, not ornamental, not benefit, 
but something that's absolutely necessary, indispensable, and essential. So air, water, food, shelter, these are essential to life on earth. There are other things, of course, but these are the sine qua non for life. As in the natural sphere, so too in the spiritual domain these things exist. Just thus, the same way that we depend on air and water and food and shelter, we depend on other things, among which are faith, hope, and love. That was the Apostle Paul's favorite trilogy. For without faith, one cannot be justified. One cannot be a believer. Semper fi, as a good Marine will tell you. Without hope, another good Latin word, despair, literally in Latin means without hope or no hope. One cannot live. One freezes in time. And while you may be breathing and you may be moving, your life is frozen in time and space. Hopelessness destroys all effort and courage. And finally, without love, sine amor or amore, life is pointless. It has no meaning at all. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that if we don't have love, we are nothing. The losses that no one can afford to experience are the losses of faith, hope, and love. Because their very power lies within the character of God, which allows us to grow beyond our current circumstance. No matter how difficult it might be, no matter how trying the times, these three things show us that there's always a better way to the future and even in the present. Now, thankfully, Second Peter tells us that God has given us everything that we need concerning life and godliness. Everything for life, everything for a godly life is here. It's all in the Word of God. So let's look at these three things in a little more detail. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There, the Apostle Paul tells us, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, Sylvanus, Sylvanus, and Timothy, they give thanks for three things, constantly remembering the Thessalonians for these three things, their, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. So first, the work of faith. Throughout Scripture, we're told, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that faith is a basic and necessary quality to be a believer. I mean, how impressive was the prophet Habakkuk when he wrote God's answer to the question, how in the world are we going to survive the invasion 
of the Babylonians. O God, he cries, how shall we live? It was a real question because death was going to reign upon Jerusalem. This question is not foreign to all of us. At one level or another, we've all asked, Lord, how are we going to get through this COVID pandemic? Other times we ask, how are we going to get through this financial crisis or this health crisis? And many of us ask, how are we going to get through this relational disaster that we're in? My friend is no longer my friend. My child won't speak to me. My relationships are falling apart. In the Lord's answer, the righteous shall live by faith. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that from the book of Romans. But it's found originally from Habakkuk. This text is so dominant that Paul uses it twice. And the author of Hebrews actually uses it to apply to the outworking of the believer's faith in the hope of Christ's return. He said, in a very little while, in chapter 10, the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In Romans 1.17, Paul tells us that the person who's justified by faith is the one who truly lives. And all this, we see that true faith is is more than just an emotional feeling uh, or a simple belief. Paul uses the word ergos, which is perhaps uh, if you're an engineer, you've heard the term erg, or you use that, right? That's from the Greek ergos, which is, he uses that to characterize work. And actually, in Greek, this, this word means, it denotes action, uh, activity, uh, work. And it includes everything in, in our actions. Our actions involves uh, deeds, our conduct, and other things as well. Therefore, the work of faith uh, is not our trusting Christ as Savior. That's not what he's talking about here. Rather, it refers to the acts and the actions and the deeds and the conduct that we have based on our faith in Christ. In other words, does that faith generate something in us? That should bring the book of Hebrews and James to your minds as as well. In this, Paul is talking about faith as a vocation. Another perfectly good Latin word, it means calling. It doesn't mean your job, it means your calling. Elton Trueblood wrote a book entitled Your Other Vocation, in which he describes your vocation as a Christian is your primary calling. Your secondary vocation is how you make a living. And so there's this danger it's ever present between what I spoke of last week, uh, doing and uh, being. The way of life in the church can be, and in work, and in life, all all around, there's this ever-present danger so that, specifically in the church, church work can easily overtake the work of the church. What I mean by that, there's always a temptation 
to maintain the movement of the wheels. That is, to maintain the machine as opposed to ever ask the question, what's the machine for? The machine is for people. It's not for the machine. And when we move and lose that understanding, then we begin to simply become turners of wheels and not, and not winners of souls. We need to ask how genuinely meaningful it is that we, what the work is that we're, we're doing now. And because the truth is there are too many good things that merit doing. You can fill your time with good merit things on your list, but the truth is you have to be able to figure out how to prioritize those that, so you're doing the best things, not simply this myriad of uh, good things. And when you see faith as a vocation, that can help you prioritize. Otherwise, things can become uh, very confusing. Uh, most often, of course, work is the, is the culprit. Um, it saps our energy and our time and, uh, from family relationships in the church. We even have a word for it. Uh, workaholic to describe the condition. However, the solution is is quite clear. If we understand that our primary vocation is the faith, then we understand that our priority, our number one priority, is to live a life that is pleasing to God. And sometimes we see wrongly faith is simply uh, believing or something that is emotional. When the truth is, faith is a total commitment, soul commitment to God. Emotion, will, uh, mind, uh, body, everything that we have. In the same way or similar way, we often view the second thing that Paul mentioned, the labor of love as primarily a, a, a feeling. I mean, when we think of love, especially in English, it lacks a precision such that it becomes almost a useless word. So I can love pizza, I can love uh, movies, uh, I love football. I will not reference last night's uh, game, else I uh, begin to celebrate. Um, I love my children, I love my wife. Certainly there is a distinction between all of those things, yet in English it doesn't come to us very, very well. The distinction, though, is very important. The kind of love that we speak of primarily in, in English and the kind of love that the Apostle Paul was talking about uh, are two different things. And that distinction is important. They're two different kinds of love. The love celebrated by by poets and lyricists and those who put words to music and so forth. That's primarily a matter of feelings. And that kind of love at its core is very deeply emotional, which I do not reject, oh, by the way. It's very important. But that kind of love is also highly selective, sometimes quite mysterious, and sometimes difficult to control. And some people, in fact, uh, upon meeting someone, they like or dislike them, 
having knowing nothing about them. And yet there are other people that come and go and generate no uh, stirring of emotions at all. Such is the nature of our emotional condition. But Paul uses a, the word agape uh, here, which has a different connotation to it, actually even denotation. But he uses something uh, to qualify that word, which is labor, which means, this, this word is a fascinating word because it means the, uh, the arduous, wearying, hard labor that brings about fatigue and exhaustion. That's what the word means. That, that has this notion here. It's not work like erg, ergos. It, this is a whole different word that means you've been breaking rocks all day long. The labor of love. Now, the kind of love that the apostle is talking about here certainly may have emotion connected with it. We're emotional. We're whole beings. We're not, we're, we're not separated as much as we like to think that, that we are. But the main point of this kind of love is that it is intentional. That is, love is a choice. We choose what to do. Otherwise... The command to love your neighbor makes no sense. The command to love your enemy even makes less sense unless it's something you can choose to do. And if it's a feeling, I'm sorry, you can't generate those. You can't, you can't pump it up, folks. You can't just say, oh, I want to feel something. I want to feel something. That's not the way feelings work. It doesn't work that way. You may feel something. It may be appropriate. It may be inappropriate. You don't know. It's what you do that matters. But this notion that love that we're told, commanded to do is an emotion is simply not the case. It's a choice. And this kind of love in our world is increasingly difficult to get in touch with because we've placed the emphasis on our feelings and we rarely look when was the last time you thought of love as a decisional process and yet that's what is spoken of here and and it's just there as we understand that that we can begin to see the distinction uh, as i was trying to figure out how to illustrate this my my mind went to one of the most intriguing love stories in the bible uh, and that was the story of Rebekah and Isaac. You may recall how Abraham sent his servant said, to get, said, I don't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman. I want him to go marry uh, someone back from home. So you go back to Mesopotamia, head on back there, and, and find a bride for Isaac. And so uh, in Genesis 24, we're, we're told it happened this way. Uh, Behold, I am standing. Just, just love it right there in the present. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. 
By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master, that is, Abraham. Before he had finished speaking, in other words, while the prayer was still on his lips, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel and the son of Milcah and the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with a water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Now here's the thing. If you go back to verse 10, how many of you have ever seen a camel? Some of you have been on a camel? Who's been on a camel? Yeah, that's a few hands, few hands go. Camels are, uh, what's, what are they called? Right? Ships of the desert, right? Okay. And why is that? It's because they can go extraordinarily long periods of time without water. Do you know how much a camel drinks? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought, how much does a camel drink? You know a camel can drink up to 50 gallons of water. If a typical thirsty camel will drink about 30 uh, gallons of water in about five minutes, a normal drink for a camel is about 20 gallons of water. So let's just do a little math. If you go back to verse 10, you find out that he left with 10 camels. So he's got 10 camels with him, and being very conservative. I'm not, let's forget the, forget the top end. Forget even the normal, you know, typical thirsty. We'll say they weren't thirsty. They had a drink before they got there. 20 gallons of water times 10. I don't know. I don't do public math. So I did this in advance. <laughs> That's 200 gallons of water. Now, as a pilot, I had to often do weight and balance on the... Well, not often. Every time I flew, I had to do weight and balance on the aircraft, which means I had to know how much fuel weighs. Okay, so I know how much fuel weighs. Water, in this case, not fuel, but nevertheless, it's fluid, weighs a little over 8 pounds per gallon. Have you ever, guys, have you ever thought about this? Three-quarters of a ton of water Rebecca had to draw in order to water those camels. Did she have help? We don't know. We're not told. She certainly organized it. But I will say this. This fits that word. It was arduous, wearying, hard labor, the kind of labor that brings about fatigue and exhaustion. This was a labor. This is, you want to know what a labor of love is? Think of Rebecca. 
And think of it as love in this way. In other words, her understanding of what it meant to love her neighbor was to do this kind of labor. She was a woman who did not know Isaac. She had no feelings for Isaac. She did not know this man. He was a stranger. She did not have feelings for him. She did this out of a similar universe of what Paul is talking about. You see, that's why we can, we can raise our children who at times, may be disobedient to us. You may want to throttle them, but that doesn't mean you don't love them. Why? Because you are doing the right thing. This is especially true when you're caring for aging parents. It's difficult, and yet it doesn't mean that you don't love them if you feel badly sometimes. What it means is love is something that you choose to do in their best interest. It's got nothing to do with how you feel at the moment. I can tell you right now, many a soldier for love of country did things that they did not like. But it was loving, even though it was not emotionally satisfying at the moment. That's labor of love. Love in action is hard work. Actually, to even say love in action is a redundancy because love, at least primarily used in the Bible, is a verb. It's what you do. It's not necessarily simply how you feel. True love equals true action. Agape love is unconditional kind of love. We talked about that this morning. It's doing what is best for the other person regardless, listen, regardless of their actions toward you or anyone else. Of course, it doesn't mean that anything goes. What it does mean is that anything that you do or anything that you say is done with the notion of what happens is in the best interest of the other person. Sometimes, because I don't want to be misunderstood here at all, sometimes it's in the best interest of the other person for that person to go to prison. Love is not weakness. Love is holding people accountable. But it's doing what is best for them. That's the kind of love. And sometimes that's a labor. Sometimes loving someone, sometimes loving someone in your life can exhaust you. But you know what? The Apostle Paul says, good on you for that. You're doing the right thing. In fact, I remember you every day because you're doing the hard work of loving someone. Finally, we come to the patience of hope. The opposite of hope is, of course, despair, which I've already mentioned. And I can tell you uh, confidently as a counselor that 
the root of many, many physical and emotional difficulties come from this lack of, of hope. But I can also attest to the healing power of hope. But hope can be hard to come by. And I, I, I got to say that my ability uh, to absorb the national media has taken a hit uh, over the past several years because of the hopelessness that it engenders. It's, it's constant. I, I've almost entirely weaned myself off of, of television news, and the news that I do get, I generally read, because, seriously, the mantra of if it bleeds, it leads, has worn my heart out. I, I don't know how you are... But, you know, if I want a considered opinion, I'll, I'll look up a peer-reviewed journal article. Uh, forget this. And I'll tell you why this is. This is almost an aside, but not exactly. It's not simply because I don't like bad news. Lord knows we've all had a lot of bad news, and I've had, I've had a lot of bad, uh, uh, bad news. But if you understand what's happening and why it's this way today, you've got to go back to the you got to go back to the 1960s. You got to understand that you know the big three, the ABC, the CBS, and the NBC were never expected to generate profit. I hope you know that. They were considered a public service. But beginning in the 60s, these big, huge international entertainment, uh, hotel even, conglomerates began to buy the media companies. And they began to put in place a profit model. And so consequently, they're fighting for money. It's no longer a public service. And it changed from public service to what it has become which is something that I find is not worth my time. If, if you're into it, I'm not saying anything about that. I'm just telling you my heart. Because it generates a sense of hopelessness in me that I don't like and I don't want. You know, we lose now over 100,000 people a year to fentanyl overdose. Those aren't suicides, folks. When you come to suicide, one and a half million Americans attempt suicide every year. We lose 18 veterans every day to suicide. Hopelessness is something that people are stuck in and they want to get out of that emotional destructive cycle but they do it with alcohol or they do it with food or they do it with leisure or they do it with some kind of escape and that does not produce hope. Jesus said, I'll tell you what produces hope. Jesus said, do not lay in Matthew chapter 6 up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust 
and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just substitute the word hope for heart, and you'll get some notion of what hope is. And that's not a stretch, me, me doing that. That's not a stretch at all. Paul declared in the book of Ephesians that there is only one hope for the righteous, and that hope is reserved in heaven, Peter goes on to say. Therefore, our hope is in heaven. There's a cathedral in Salzburg, Austria, that Barb and I visited. Some of you may have been there as well. And over the doors, or by the doors, I guess I should say, there are three doors, and the, uh, there are the divine virtues that are there, faith, and hope, and in the center door, the larger door, love. I, I think that would be just as appropriate to put on our communi- communion table as this do in remembrance of me. Faith, hope, and love. Why? We can write faith because Jesus died for us. We can write hope because He is coming again. And we can write love because greater love has no man than this. Genuine faith, hope, and love are real, and they should be exercised. Through, throughout all of time, no one has said it better than Paul in another passage where he mentions this trio in 1 Corinthians, where he says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And even though he said it best, no one has shown it better than Christ. John 15, 13, Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends in John 15:13 but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners still sinners Christ died for us Father we cannot express our gratitude we we can't even as Benoit mentioned uh, fathom the love that you have for us. And yet, we, through your Spirit, have been able to appropriate it in the smallest measure. And yet, that small measure gives us the ability to love each other. We pray that that would always be said. And that that's how we would be known. It's who we are in you, our Lord and Savior. Amen.